notation this morning. So find towards the end of the handout where it says what marks paganism. What we have here at the end of the handout are lists of sins that are given to us in the Bible. You may recall three Sundays ago that we, and Dory, thank you so much for teaching these last two Sundays. He, Dory sent me the material that he taught you, so I know it was a real treat for y'all. Thank you so much, Dory. Uh, we're looking at these lists of sins principally because God loves us and he wants us to know what harms us. He wants us to know, to understand uh, what's good for us and bad for us. So ultimately, we have these lists of sins because of the love of God for us. So let me pray, and we're going we're gonna to jump in and finish this handout this morning. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we adore you, we worship you, we bow before you, we hail you as the one true God. You are faithful. You keep your promises. You are holy. You're pure. You're eternal. You're unchanging. And you're a God that longs to reveal himself and his will. Lord, we see you so clearly in Jesus. He explains the Father. He interprets the Father to us. And to know you, Jesus, is to have life eternal. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the gift of a new heart. Thank you for the gift of new appetites by which we hunger for the truth. We hunger for the word of God. We hunger to know what is good for us. We hunger to know you. And you're ultimately all that we need, all that we have, and we are rich in Jesus Christ. So Holy Spirit, bless your precious people this morning. Bless them with the word of God. Bless them with this teaching. Draw them into deeper fellowship with Jesus. Show them more and more their need of you. Show them your good and wonderful will. Make clear to them the glory of being converted brought from darkness to light, from death to life, from slavery to freedom, from ignorance to knowledge. So we thank you for this time together. Use it for our good and the glory of Jesus who is building his church, who is in our midst, who is our king and head. We pray in his name, amen. So let me use this illustration to uh, illustrate why we need these lists of sins in the Bible, in addition to the things the Bible tells us are good for us, the revealed will of God. Suppose you are sitting down to watch uh, the, uh, the most important sporting event in, in your life. It's Game 7 of the World Series, the Nationals are playing the Astros. You probably, some of you did that last fall or the Redskins or whoever are in the Super Bowl, and you sit down, you turn the TV on, and the picture is blurry, and you are so frustrated, you can't see clearly the action on the TV. So you are angry, you're frustrated, you're profoundly disappointed. Why? Because something so important to you is not clear. Well, sin leaves us with a blurry vision of life. And life is good. God created life. Everything about life is good. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. And it is a crime to see through blurry vision something that is lovely. And so God in his word 
gives us pictures of the way life is meant to be lived. God in his word uh, uh, tells us, gives us a vision for where we find true happiness, fulfillment, blessing, where we find him. What could be better than finding God in the midst of life? You may have heard me talk about Proverbs this way. One of the reasons I read Proverbs every morning, the, the chapter of Proverbs corresponds with the day of the month, this morning, Proverbs 5, maybe you read it, is Proverbs really is about how you live life. The main image there is the path of life. God wants you to find the path because on it you can never hurt yourself. On it you receive blessing. And of course it's the fear of the Lord that gets us on that path, the grace of knowing that God is the most beautiful, desirable person in the universe, and in wanting him, I want the supreme good of my life. And we get on the path, and, we, and Proverbs tells us, here are the good things you're going to find on the path as you stay on it, and here are the danger points off to the side. And so I think of Proverbs, <clears throat> the word of God generally, <clears throat> excuse me, and Proverbs specifically, as a, as, as a jigsaw puzzle, and I wake up in the morning, and I need to see clearly again. I, I assume that as I'm sleeping through the night, my, my vision of God, my vision of myself, my vision of what's important, my vision of what life is supposed to be, I assume it's blurry, and I need, to get the, I need to get the focus clear again. The Word of God helps me to do that, specifically Proverbs. So you have these different pieces of the puzzle. You read God's Word, uh, and, and, and you read God's Word, and the pieces come together, and there's the picture of the way life is meant to be lived. And what you see in that picture are things that harm you, that detract from your enjoyment of others, life, your work, your friends, your spouse, your children, God himself. That's why we have these lists of things um, in, in the Bible. God wants us to know what detracts from, what hinders us from enjoying him and the life he created. God wants you to experience life to the fullest. So we need these lists. That's sort of a long introduction to why we need these lists. And see, sometimes if you're not taught what's bad for you, you don't necessarily know. Some people know in their conscience. But I, I remember talking to a church planter in Seattle a couple years ago. And he said he'd get newly converted people. He was with them in a small group. And they were seriously debating whether it was okay to sleep with another man's spouse, another person's house. They, the, just their worldview, to them, it wasn't clear at all that that was wrong. I was raised in a home where that was pretty clear that was wrong. I was raised in the church, general knowledge of the Ten Commandments. But we live in such a secular culture that that wasn't even clear to these people. Oh, it's wrong not to sleep around as a married person. That's just an illustration of, if you haven't been taught it, you may not know it. Uh, have you been taught about faithful giving? What does faithful giving look like? Well, I don't think you intuitively know the biblical principles of giving unless you're taught them. So, so that's the point. God teaches us because we don't necessarily know, and he warns us about sins because we don't necessarily know. We're going to look first at 1 Peter 4.2. It's actually going to come up in the sermon today, just providentially, coincidentally. But here's another list of sins, what I'm calling Mark's paganism. So here we go. Peter writes, and we'll actually look at this in the sermon later on in our first Peter uh, series more specifically, but uh, because there's a list of sins here, I think it's valuable to us. Peter says, so as to live 
for the rest of the time in the flesh, your mortal body, for the, now that you're converted, the live until the, living until the time you die, to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So Peter is setting up an antithesis. That's one of the technical terms theologians use to describe the nature of moral reality. There is an antithesis. There is good, there is evil. There is Satan, there's the kingdom of God. There are the values that mark God, there are the values that mark anti-God. There's an antithesis. Uh, we're, we're all born with that in our hearts. We still fight it. We still fight indwelling sin as we move through the Christian life. So here's the antithesis, human passions and the will of God. So I'm illustrating it for you this way. We've got human passions and the will of God, and Peter's starting out saying, the time for you to have lived there is done. You belong to Jesus now. Consider that life history. Don't go back there. Uh, and we're going to actually, when we get into the second half of Romans 6, we'll see how Paul teases out his version of that. So Peter writes, uh, the, the rest of the time of the flesh is no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. You were, uh, he's writing to a largely Gentile converted audience. He's acknowledging that. Look, that's done. You live that way. And he's going to tease out what were some of the things that mark the way the Gentiles live, what they want to do. We always do what we want to do, right? It says living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. It sounds like a college campus in America, doesn't it? Wow. So here's the list. Again, there's an antithesis between living for the will of God Obviously, in this case, that would be the revealed uh, prescriptive will of God, what God wants you to do, the law of God, and passions. That's our Greek word, episemia. And he lists them, sensuality. You remember, uh, may remember a few weeks ago, it's a broad word in the Greek that referred to unbridled, unrestrained living, just self-indulgent of every variety, sensuality. Uh, when he says passions there, that's our Greek word, episemia, as a reminder. The Greek word for desire is thumia. Desire is fine. We, God gives us desires for all different kinds of things. But when you put the prefix epi in front of it, the word epi functions to intensify the word that follows. So desire becomes over-desire, inordinate desire, lust, passion. We'll see this word in the sermon with the Greek word episkapas. That's the word for visitation in the, in the text we're looking at this morning. It's also the word for translated in your New Testament for bishop or overseer. So the role of your elders, that's their uh, numerical qualification, they're older, but their function is to episkapas, skapas to look at, epi to look at closely. One of the functions of elders is to look closely at your life and to help you live a life that conforms to the will of God. You're no longer living like a Gentile. Okay, so episemia. Passions, lusts, over-desires, wanting a good thing too much, making a good gift of God the thing for which you live. And that, of course, is idolatry. And then he lists drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. That's a, so here, here it looks like people are just completely giving themselves over to their base appetites without self-control. And here's what he says about this. 
He says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So what do some Christians experience who live like pagans into adulthood, had friends that were pagans, or God calls them out of that lifestyle into living for the will of God? What do they experience? Oftentimes at the hands of their former friends. They're surprised. What's wrong with you, Mike? You used to party with us every Friday night. What happened to you? They don't get it. Why would we expect them to get it, right? I've got a new heart. I've got new desire. I have a new God. I'm no longer my own God. So they're surprised, and it doesn't stop there. They malign you. I've talked to people over the years about their conversion experiences, and I've heard a number of testimonies of uh, young people who lived like pagans, were converted, went back to witness to their friends in this lifestyle, and guess what happened to them? They were shunned. They were lied. They were, they were treated as outsiders. We want nothing to do with you. So sin loves company. It doesn't want the will of God spoken into it. So why, goodness, what happened to you? They're surprised, and they malign you. I do want to point out that this phrase, flood of debauchery, that Greek word debauchery is the same word that shows up in Paul's writing in Ephesians 5, where we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. So don't be drunk with wine. That is debauchery. It's the same Greek word, but be filled with the Spirit. So debauchery here, it functions to picture a life that is subhuman, that isn't reaching the glorious potential for which God designed it. And you never do when all you're doing is indulging the base desires of the flesh and you're not living, uh, you're not satisfying your normal desires for good things, good things. Doesn't, um, doesn't Paul say in 1 Timothy 4, I just read this in my devotions, that's why it's fresh on my mind, said all things uh, are, can be received, are all th all, God gives us all good things to enjoy. And if we receive them with a sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Then in, and then in 1 Timothy 6, he talks about contentment. And he, he instructs the rich to uh, be careful about money. But God is the God who gives us all things to enjoy. So, all that to say, um, this idea of debauchery is, is your life becomes something that is, well, putrid in the sight of God. And is is um, is you become overcome with these things, a flood of debauchery, and it's so far from the from the person God created you to be. Okay, uh, if you're just interested, the word malign here is the word blaspheme. They blaspheme you. They say all kinds of wrong things about you. They injure your reputation and run you down. Okay, now just um, so here's this flamboyant, extravagant living. Uh, unfortunately, this is a slavery. People give themselves over to these things. It's very hard to break out of these. And uh, not least when the people you do them with are going to ostracize you if you stop doing it with them. So there's another list of sins. Let's go down to what characterizes the world. Interestingly, this is the Greek word cosmos. And uh, oftentimes in the New Testament, when... when uh, the New Testament writers are talking about the physical creation, the trees, the clouds, the grass, flowers, fruits, and vegetables. That's the cosmos. 
And sometimes in the New Testament, the, the spirit of the age, the spirit of the world, is a different one that's used here. John is using cosmos here, and he says, don't love, don't agape, don't agape the world or the things in the world. Now, he doesn't mean you're not supposed to like the good gifts God gives us. They're gifts from his hand. He loves to give us good things. Food, the, all the different pleasures where people that are wired for all different kinds of pleasures. We're to enjoy those, but of course on God's terms. And what the world is, is the taking of those pleasures on our terms. And, and the, the, the idea of the world is life expressed in rebellion against God. We'll have nothing to, it's, it's this idea, you keep your grubby hands off my life, I will do life on my terms, I'll take your good gifts, and I'll enjoy them the way I want to, irrespective of the giver. You see how sin is completely irrational. None of us invented any of those pleasures. None of, none of us could uh, invented or had the, gave origin to any of these good things. They all come from God, and yet, and yet we're going to use them on our own terms. That's part of the nature of sin. So John says, don't love the world or the things in the world, and he teases out what that is. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, that's the agape of the Father is not in him. If you agape the world, the agape of the Father is not in you. There's antithesis again. You see that? So I have to look in my heart, and obviously we're tempted to love the things in the world, and a serious Christian realizes, oh, I'm being drawn now to love things more than God. And so then we repent. We turn to the Lord. We ask him to cleanse us. We, we're going to stumble here in many ways, James 3, 2 says. We all stumble in many ways. We give, we give in temporarily to these desires but the Spirit calls us back to the Father, and we know we're in our right minds when we know in our heart of hearts God is, in fact, infinitely more desirable and beautiful than all the good gifts he gives us combined. That's when I know when I'm in my right mind. And that's why I need the Word of God every day to convince my mind of that, because everything I see is very visual. Everything I see is very real. God is quite invisible. But God makes himself most visibly known to my conscience, my imagination, through his word. I need the word, I need the word, or I'm going to get pulled in every which direction. I'm not going to love God. I'm not going to experience his love for me. I like the way David puts it in Psalm 63. Your love is better than life. Can we say that? Well, I've got to be meditating on it. I've got to ask the Spirit to pound it into my heart. I've got to ask the Spirit to convince me of that. I've got to ask the Spirit to show me that the good things I have are just that. They're all ultimately inferior to the God who David says in Psalm 16, in whose presence there is fullness of joy and in his right hand pleasures forever. That's who God is. In his presence, fullness of joy. At his right hand, pleasures forever. We don't experience the fullness of that this side of glory. We will in glory. And so part of Part of fighting sin, part of temptation, part of Christian sanctification is, with the help of others, using the means of grace, seeking to have our hearts captivated by the glory of this God in Jesus Christ, in whose presence there's uh, uh, fullness of joy and his right hand pleasures forever. So the more I have an appetite for who God is, the less appealing these worldly things are. Uh, and and then, I, then you can really enjoy the good gifts God gives you because you enjoy him the most. So Paul, uh, excuse me, John writes, verse 16, all that's in the world, 
the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Kind of a warning there, right? Hey, I don't want to be on that train that when it leaves the station is going to hell. <laughs> I want to be on the train that when it leaves the station, this is the will of God. I want to be in the presence of God forever. Good for us to be warned. Good wake-up call. Hey, which train am I on? What do I really desire? God help me. And I write here that we hear echoes in these verses of Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the desires of the flesh, and it was a delight to the eyes, the desire of the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, the most applied of life. You could actually do a study, I'm not going to go into it now, where you, where, you, where you teased out those three things and the temptation of Adam and Eve, the three things Jesus was tempted with, and these three things you'll see a lot of overlap. I think, again, the point is, these three things represent grabbing God's gifts on his terms in rebellion against God. What Adam and Eve started in the garden was a rebellion. We're going to live life on our terms. We're going to take all the gifts of God and use them the way we want to. That's rebellion. Uh, so if you think of... Um, Let's suppose you struggle with uh, buying expensive art, just to use a silly illustration. Fill in the blank for whatever it is for you. So the desires of the flesh, I want to have a great art collection. The desires of the eye, you see that thing. The more you look at it, the more you want it. That's why, that's why, um, that's why merchants send us catalogs in the mail. The more you look, the more you want. I have, a, I have a button on my favorites bar that is a webcam at the beach in Kerala, and it spans the beach like this. And I look at it every day to see what the ocean is like. Well, guess what I want to do when I look at that? I want to be there. The more I look, the more I want. And then the boastful pride of life. How is this famous art collection functioning in my soul? Do I feel important? Do I feel valuable? Do I have esteem? Do I feel, um, do I feel superior to other people who don't know art as well as I do? So that's a silly illustration of how all of these things are usually coalescing together. All right, let's, uh, let's go to the next one, which is uh, another list. It's brief, but it's those unfit for God's kingdom. Here, the Bible is ending on a warning. And that is Revelation 22, 15, outside, outside of the, of the gates of the city of life, the celestial city, are the dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters. So why would we expect them to be in there? This is a place of perfect righteousness. It's a place where everyone has been perfected, will shine like the sun forever. That means we're going to be as pure and righteous before one another, before God, as Jesus is now in our glorified bodies. Why would we expect to be sin there? This is a place of no sorrow, no tears, no sickness, no sadness, no sin. That's the great hope. That's one of the good things about dying. We're done with sin. We're done with this body through which I express my rebellion against God. That'll be over. Outside of the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves phileo, 
Again, I think you may remember several weeks ago I told you that agape, phileo, and, uh, well, eros is in a different category. Those two are used somewhat interchangeably by the New Testament writers. Everyone who loves and practices falsehood. What does that mean? Well, it's a challenge for you and me to ask, what about my life doesn't comport with the truth of who God is, the truth of the way God made me to live, the truth of the beauty of the holiness of the pattern of the life of Jesus. Anything else is falsehood. So this is one way of talking about unbelievers. They love, and therefore, they practice falsehood. And so being converted is being delivered from a life of lies, right? It's a lie that I was, that I, that I was self-created. It's a lie that I'm free to determine my own destiny. It's a lie that no one else can tell me what happiness is for me. That's a lie. That's a falsehood. I live that way. I die in falsehood. I'm outside of God's presence forever. It's a horrible thing. So the Bible ends with this kind of, okay, wait, let me check myself. And we give thanks to God that in this presence, none of these things will be forever. It's a, we're grateful for that. Hopefully it propels us in our personal relationships with those around us, that we might see them saved from living a life of falsehood. And part of that is them living a life of truth before them, speaking the truth, earning the right to say that by being a good friend, by serving them, by modeling what a life of truthfulness is. One of the things always discouraging to me is you hear unbelievers talk about Christians Say, oh yeah, that guy goes to church, but I know as a businessman in town, he's a crook. And you just go, oh. I, mean, I believe that the person knows that they're a crook, yet he goes to church. Oh, that man's a deacon at so-and-so church. Yeah, but he sleeps around. It's just crushing that there's this hypocrisy. Well, let's, let's move on. That actually catapults us to the next category, and that is religious hypocrisy. You probably know, if you've read the Gospels, that the people with whom Jesus had the most heartburn were religious people. They were the religious leaders. He was known as a friend of tax collectors. They were the most despised people in Jesus' culture. The friend of the prostitutes, he went to parties where all these low life, all these immoral, actually, where these people were hanging out. Jesus, of course, was not indulging any of these sins. He was there to be light. He was there to show them that God loves sinners and he came to save sinners and to deliver them into a different and a better life. And when they see Jesus and know who he is, they are delivered from those lifestyles. But Jesus had the most difficult time with the, with the religious uh, leaders of his, of his day. And I just want to tease out a couple of verses that look at this. Matthew 15, 6, Jesus says, So for the sake of your tradition, that is, man-made, man-invented rules and regulation, not God's law, See, they, had the, they taught the law of God, but then they had their traditions. For the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus is condemning legalism. Binding the human conscience with man-made commandments where the law of God does not. Jesus didn't like that at all. He knew that the law of God itself was sufficient to bind the conscience. And so legalism in one form is telling people you can't do this, you must do this, where the Bible doesn't speak to that. We have liberty 
we have Christian liberty in many areas of our lives. The, the commandments of God are sufficient in themselves to tell us how to live, and they're hard enough to keep without all this other man-made stuff heaped upon us. So that's what Jesus teases out in Matthew 23, which is the most scathing. If you have this picture that Jesus was only this meek and mild and humble and gentle person, and all that's, that's all he was, then you haven't read Matthew 23, which sets up Jesus' prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem, Matthew 24, and when you read Matthew 24, you get it because you've read Matthew 23. So anyway, here are some verses from Matthew 23. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, so he's calling out the religious leaders. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they're given responsibility to teach you the law of God, Torah. The, the, they sit in Moses' seat. They're responsible to teach you Genesis, Exodus, the numbers of Deuteronomy. So do and observe whatever they tell you. So to the extent they're teaching you God's word, do it. Observe it. You need someone to teach you the word of God. But not the works they do. So here's the hypocrisy. They preach, they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move their finger. I think that's an allusion to this extra-biblical rules that they're laying on people that is referenced in Matthew 15. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, being called rabbi by others. Now here's some of the lists of religious things, supposedly religious-looking things, that end up being utterly disdainful according to the assessment of Jesus. And then at verse 11, the, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And I think for, in Jesus' day, so when religious leaders hear that, they are really jarred by that. I think they had a view of leadership that said, I'm in this position, everybody serves me. Uh, no, Jesus wants to turn that on its head. He wants to, this is an upside-down kingdom. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That, 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 that attitude of servanthood should be in all of our leaders. We're called to be servant leaders. In some respects, we lead, we rule, a church, your church elders. But we ought to do that with a servant heart. You know that God has called us to serve you, his people, as Jesus is constantly serving us. So the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And I think now, um, and he's talked about the way they are self-exaltation by seeking the, the most important seats and standing around and wanting to look important and wanting everybody to say, well, look at you, you're really important. They're drawing attention to themselves. So he says, um, uh, you shut the kingdom in people's faces. What a horrible thing to be said of somebody, right? Oh my goodness. I mean, my job as your pastor is to open the kingdom to you, to tell you what life is like in the kingdom, to tell you that entrance into the kingdom is by grace, through faith, through the, uh, through the blood of Jesus. Far be it that any of us would ever shut the kingdom in people's faces. Uh, you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Let me summarize it with these three points. What are the, what are the, base, the three essential things Jesus is saying wrong? The, the condense this list to this. They're adding to God's law. They're not practicing what they teach. That's the hypocrisy. And they're proud. They're attention-seeking. Okay? Let's, let's finish this handout, and next week, 
Lord willing, we'll jump back and uh, I think finish the second half of Romans 6. Just talk a little bit about conviction of sin. It is the Father's pleasure to send the Spirit of Jesus to convict us of our sin so that one, we might be converted, and two, we might live a life of putting off sin, finding our delight in God himself. You can't find your delight in what is good and righteous and true and pure unless you are saying what is contrary to that. And so the Spirit is pleased to do that. Um, it's a gift, in other words, to be convicted of your sin. It's a blessing, and it's never to condemn you. It's always the God convicts us of sin because he loves us. He wants us the best for him. We understand this as parents. When you're parenting, you're constantly pointing your child into, this is going to hurt you. This is good for you. You did this. There needs to be consequences. Please don't hit your brother in the face. All this kind of stuff. It's the, the whole assumption behind it is sin is bad for us. Unfortunately, we want to sin, and the Spirit of God needs to show us that, expose that, and lead us in a better way. You have one allusion to the work of the a spirit here in John 16, uh, 7, among many others. Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. He's referring to his ascension, because when Jesus is ascended, he is going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And one of the things the spirit is going to do is convict us of sin so that we're, so we're going to know we need to flee to Jesus for salvation. And he's going to continue to convict us of sin until we have no sin when we die and are with Jesus in glorified bodies. But if I go, I will send him to you. Oh, I'm sorry, but the helper, if I don't go, the helper won't come to you. So there's a necessity Jesus must ascend to heaven, and that pulls a trigger on the coming of the Holy Spirit. We live now in the age of the Spirit. The Old Testament was the look forward to the promise of the Spirit. Now the Spirit has been poured out. And you read to the book of Acts and you see what the Holy Spirit is doing. Some people even renamed the book of Acts instead of the Acts of the Apostles, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And you see markers throughout the book of Acts what the Word of God is doing. And it looks principally like it's the Spirit using the Word of God to console, to comfort, to convict, to convert, to build up the church. And he's been doing that for 2,000 years. So, if I don't go, the Helper won't come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And Jesus teases out what these things mean. I'm not going to get into the details with you on them, but Jesus says concerning sin, because they didn't believe in me. This would be the worst sin of all, to be exposed to Jesus and not trust that he is, in fact, Messiah, that he is, in fact, Savior. That's the worst sin of all. Now, there are people in this world who never hear the name of Jesus. They will not be condemned for that. If they've never heard the name of Jesus, they won't be condemned for rejecting Christ. God will judge them on the basis of what they know, and that is, in creation, God's invisible attributes are made known. God's, what God requires of them is to some extent written in their conscience. And so that's the basis of which everyone will be judged. People have heard of Jesus and rejected him, will incur a second judgment. Is that clear? <clears throat> and because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will no longer see me. Concerning judgment, the ruler of this world is judged. A lot we could say about that. Let me just move on and finish this with uh, how delighted the Spirit is to use the Word of God in, uh, in sanctifying us and convicting us. Think of the words of Jesus in John 17 when he prayed to the Father. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy Word is truth. 
So Jesus is pointing you there. How do you know what's true? How do you distinguish falsehood from how do you know the life God's called you to live? How do you know who God is? How do you know who you are? Thy word is truth. And in that thing, actually prior to praying that in the upper room, uh, Jesus said this in John 8, 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So how do you recognize a disciple of Jesus? They abide in the word of God. What is the fruit of abiding in the word of God? Knowing the truth. What is the benefit of knowing the truth? Freedom. Free to be who God made you to be. Free to know who God really is, not in the imagination of your own mind. Think how destructive, self-destructive it is of people to have their own imagination of what God is like and to live accordingly. I mean, that, that, that's idolatry. We end up destroying ourselves, living our lives in light of our false God. Now, there's something curious about this verse, and that is the stock phrase that John uses to identify saving faith is pistuo, believe, with the preposition ace, in or into or upon. <clears throat> he does not use it here. Uh, so, so typically when he's talking about saving faith, he says, those who believe in me, upon me, into me. And that's the idea of saving faith. It rests on Jesus. It places trust upon Jesus. That, that preposition is missing at the beginning of verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, and that that, that moves some commentators to say that Jesus detects something deficient in the discipleship, in the supposed belief of these Jews that prompts Jesus to say what he says. So he kind of challenges their so-called belief. And we know that there's different kinds of belief. James distinguishes this in James 3. There are people who believe and they're no different than demons. <laughs> right? You believe, you do well, the demons believe, but they shudder. So there's mere intellectual assent they're saying, oh, I know the facts about Jesus. I might know the facts about Easter and Christmas, but those facts haven't changed me. I don't have uh, the Latin fiducia, trust. I don't have uh, uh, an existential connection to Jesus because of that faith. There's just intellectual assent. And, uh, you know, that isn't going to do you any good, is what James says in James 3, and Jesus seems to be hinting at here. So he challenges their belief if you abide in my word. So trust in Jesus needs to drive you to the word of Jesus, where we live abiding in a close relationship with him. So any of us with an earshot of my words need to ask, if you say you believe in Jesus, great. How does this Jesus exercise his lordship in your life? How does this Jesus shepherd you? How does this Jesus mediate his grace to you? How does this Jesus make himself known to you? How does this Jesus enter into fellowship with you? Answer, abiding in his word, among other things and the means of grace. So I think it's a, it's, 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 it's a warning, it's a wake-up call. Do I merely have intellectual assent? Or do I have real trust in Jesus that has moved me to seek him in his word? If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciple. So here's a mark of a true disciple. They have a living relationship with the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, the uh, Greek word graphe, the writings, all the writings, and of course, as Paul's writing, he's, a 
all that we really have here are, are some of the New Testament letters that he's written, and this is, 2 Timothy's his last one, but what he's referring to here is the Old Testament, is breathed out by God, literally means theopneumatos, uh, it's, it's the breath of God, scripture comes as God exhales, <sighs> scripture comes out of God. It's exhaled out of God. So we know the scriptures are trustworthy because of the source. God is trustworthy. We know the scriptures are true because God is true. We know the scriptures can't mislead us because God doesn't mislead us. We know the scriptures are without error because God isn't a God of error. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You and I need all of those things. Someone described this, uh, they diagrammed it this way. That's my time. Two minutes. Ooh. Well, I'm not going to get to it. Uh, let me, um, we all need it, right? We all need the teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. And it is sufficient. It is sufficient for us to be equipped for every good work. Finally, 2 Timothy 4.2 uh, Remember that Paul is passing the baton of his ministry to young Timothy. Paul has said in chapter 4, my departure soon, I'm, I'm, I've already been poured out as, a, as an offering to God. He's about to die. He knows that. And he's passing the baton to Timothy. What does he want Timothy to do? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. This is what he's supposed to do with the word of God. With, and how? With complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, and beloved, it was then and it still is now when people will not endure sound teaching, but having uh, itching ears that will accumulate for themselves, teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I know that is not you, because you are in a Bible-believing church, and I know you, and you love the church, and you love the Word of God, and bless the Lord for any, any inclination in us that when we want our ears tickled, we will help each other to turn back to the truth of God. But I bless God that you have a love for his word. And may it always be so here at this church. Lord, as we go to worship, give us a greater love for you. Give us joy, exalting your name, singing together. May the word of God do its good work through my mouth, Jamie's mouth, and as it's sung, prayed, and spoken. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll see you all next week, 9.15. Thanks for joining us.